Morning. Uh, today we're reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub that the prince of the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons Jesus knew his, their thoughts and said to them every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand if satan drives out satan he's divided against himself how then can his kingdom stand and if and if i drive out demons by beelzebub by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give, an, have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken." For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Morning, everyone. I, uh, I recognise this could be, my memory is hopeless, but I, this could be the first time I've uh, had the pleasure of being in fellowship with you guys this year. Uh, and uh, if that is the case, I anticipate there might be some people who have no idea who I am. So, hello. My name is Ben. I'm uh, one of the, uh, uh, the ministers at our, within our parish. Our responsibility is primarily towards youth and young adults, so I lead our evening uh, congregation. Uh, I'm married to Stacy. It'll be 17 years this year. And we have uh, three lovely boys, uh, Eli, Micah and Isaac. Obviously, I'm a, uh, a follower of the Lord Jesus. He's my Lord and Saviour, even though I don't always do particularly good at being his follower. Uh, I uh, was raised in a Jewish household and became a follower of Jesus when I was 19, which is a bit of a story that I'd love to share with you sometime if you're interested. Uh, feel free to ask me anything about myself later on, but uh, I'm going to bring the Word of God to bear on myself and us all together this morning. So uh, please do keep your Bibles open at Matthew 12, and I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you're the God who speaks and that you speak to us through your word, the Scriptures. 
Please, Father, help us to set aside any distractions this morning that we would both rejoice and tremble at your word and that it would uh, seat itself in our hearts and make us more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, a constant and well-known problem that plagues God's church and always has is the temptation towards what I call the feel-good gospel. People don't want to hear stuff that sounds negative or judgy, and so the trendy preachers especially don't talk so much about sin, judgment, repentance, but about blessing and happiness and overcoming life challenges and the like. The obvious danger is that it's not long before Jesus moves from being saviour and lord to being support crew and life coach. Hence that old saying that sugar-coated preaching is dangerous to your soul. As an illustration, a little bit well-known illustration, designed to correct the temptation towards the feel-good gospel, you might have heard of this hypothetical scenario where there's a person on their deathbed and they've got one hour to live and they have asked you, the Christian, to explain the faith to them within their final hour. Now, if, you, if what you would say to such a person in that one hour was directly proportional to the revelation God has given in the Scriptures, you'd spend around 50 minutes talking about human sinfulness and our liability to judgment from the Holy God, and then in the last 10 minutes, you'd tell them the good news of Jesus. Now, of course, just because it might be quantitatively proportional to the scriptures doesn't necessarily mean we should spend 50 minutes talking about sin, judgment and hell to someone on their deathbed. But I bring it up because if you are anything like me, then you feel that one of the hardest things about commending the good news of the Lord Jesus to other people is warning them that human sinfulness renders us liable to the judgment of a holy God with eternal punishment. Should warning form a significant part of our evangelistic efforts? Should warning be part of the gospel? Not surprisingly, Jesus' teaching today sheds a lot of light on that issue. And so I hope you're ready with me. We're going to get stuck into it right now. The scene gets set from verse 22. Then they brought him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute... And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Which is kind of like the long way of asking, could this be the Messiah, the Christ? And that is the right question to ask. All throughout the Old Testament, God had made it clear that he would establish his rule in his place over his chosen people, Israel, and that would result in blessing, not only for them, but for people from all nations. And yet, whilst it would be God alone who does this work, who accomplishes this task, it would somehow be done through a person, the suffering servant, who had the Spirit of the Lord upon him in Isaiah, the Son of Man who receives all power on him, glory, and, and, and all nations that will worship him, Daniel 7, the King in the line of David, who would restore Israel, Ezekiel 34. If you recognised 
Jesus as fulfilling, even potentially filling any one of these roles, it will be thoroughly sensible, given the expectations of the Old Testament, to wonder if Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, we saw in last week's passage, I think Jono brought that to us in uh, digital form, that in this current phase of his earthly ministry, Jesus was showing himself to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, obviously a person, but also one who did divine work, for God's Holy Spirit was upon him. I have anointed you with my spirit to, to uh, proclaim the good news. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, had made up their mind that Jesus was not the Messiah because he posed a threat to their religious and political power. Uh, it's always the people that have the most to lose by acknowledging the truth of Jesus that find it hardest to acknowledge him. So in a somewhat desperate attempt to quell any suspicion that Jesus is the Christ, they come up with an alternative explanation. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, friends, at one level, this is the right kind of attack. I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, if people believe that Jesus was indeed anointed powerfully by the Spirit of God to bring the kind of restoration that the suffering servant of the Lord would bring, then it's not too big a step to wonder, is he also the ruler of God's new kingdom? That is, is he also the Christ? So the Pharisees try to nip that problem in the bud, claiming that Jesus' work is not done in the power of the Spirit of God, but by the devil. Uh, Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies, and of course it's a nickname for Satan. So according to the Pharisees, Jesus can't be that suffering servant who brings forgiveness and restoration, let alone the great son of David, the Christ, who rules over God's redeemed people. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? And a little bit telling that the Pharisees don't try to deny the miraculous supernatural. I mean, no one can deny these are real, legit miracles, right? Instantaneous and complete. They can't deny that. They, they'd be total fools. And so they have to ascribe satanic force or power as the, the means by which Jesus did those things. Now, Jesus responds... Firstly, by dismantling the logic of that ridiculous move by the Pharisees and then setting the record straight about himself. So we start with the dismantling of the logic. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? It's simple logic. The country with civil war is dead, it's doomed. And it's a really clever uh, sort of jab that Jesus gives to the Pharisees here. You see, if he was driving out demons by Beelzebul, that would still mean, obviously, that Satan's kingdom is on the way out. If Satan's kingdom's on the way out, whose kingdom is on the way in? Well, that would be God's. He's just kind of said to them that you guys, by your dumb logic, have kind of agreed with me and John the Baptist that the kingdom of heaven really is at hand, which the Pharisees really, really didn't want to do. Condemning Jesus in this particular way would actually still result in the fall of Satan and the inauguration of God's kingdom. But the second logical problem with the Pharisees' claim 
is that it opens them up to exactly the same charge. Verse 27, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, here's a question, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they, whoever they are, will be your judges, that is judges in the sense of rulers. Yeah, it's completely arbitrary and can be applied to anyone. If I drive out demons by the power of pink elephants, you know, obviously I'm ruled by pink elephants. If you drive them out by whatever it is, you can apply the same logic to yourself and that's obviously ridiculous. The alternative explanation, which of course is the right one, is that Jesus is operating just as you would be led to expect the suffering servant to operate, just as you would expect someone endowed with the Spirit of God to operate, just as you might even expect the Messiah to operate. Hence the question, is this the son of David? And so, verse 28, Jesus confirms it, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, which it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is basically saying, if what I'm doing lines up with God's prophesied expectations, then yeah, obviously I am the suffering servant and even the Messiah, and yes, the kingdom of God therefore truly is being inaugurated. And notice Jesus doesn't say to these Pharisees that God's kingdom has come to you, but it has come upon you. You've just called God's special servant an agent of Satan. So if he really is the spirit-empowered Messiah, then you guys are kind of in big trouble. Of course, they are in big trouble, for as Jesus then goes on in his rebuke, he again makes the not-so-subtle claim that he truly is the Christ, for he not only fulfills the spirit-empowered servant's role, but he actually also exercises the kind of ruling that God alone is capable of exercising. Once upon a time, God's then exiled people from the the south of Israel when they were captive in Babylon, uh, were spoken to by Yahweh, the Lord, and he said to them, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? You know, will you guys get out of this exile? Verse 25, but this is what Yahweh says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I says God, will contend with those who contend with you. In other words, I'm going to plunder that strong captor, the Babylonians, and bring my people out. Of course, Jesus alludes to this work of God alone and plainly uses it to describe what he himself is doing. Back here in Matthew 12, verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can plunder his house. The implication is that as Jesus is acting in the way that God alone has promised to act, it is far more likely he's the Christ than an agent of the devil. So, with the logic of the Pharisees' claim uh, pretty firmly dismantled, and with Jesus affirming what the people were already thinking, could this be the son of David, he then delivers an important teaching about how we out to people or to approach him. He starts off by making it clear that there is no such thing as being spiritually neutral. This is a slap in the face to the thinking of most people in, in sort of Western countries in Australia. Every person who has ever lived 
and currently is alive, is either for Jesus, that is, they acknowledge he is the Christ who has come from God, or else they are against him. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. No middle ground. And by the way, these words that Jesus uses, this is the language actually of of salvation and judgment. In the Bible, gathering is characteristic of people God has saved, whereas scattering is characteristic of people under his judgment. Tower of Babel, they all come together to make a name for themselves in defiance of God. In his judgment, God scatters them. Ten northern tribes of Israel, they uh, consistently have terrible kings who promote idolatry. After a while, he sends in the Assyrians to conquer and scatter them. Jesus is about to be led to his crucifixion. God says, I'll strike the shepherd with my rod and the sheep will be scattered. The disciples flee. But the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Jews from all nations under heaven are gathered for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's why, by the way, mature Christians, barring sickness and holidays, are actually almost always at church on a Sunday. Gathering is part of our spiritual DNA if we are saved. But either you're for Jesus, you're with Jesus, hence you're saved or else you're against him, which results in judgment. There's absolutely no such thing as being spiritually neutral. If Jesus is not your Lord, if he is not your Christ, then you will face the judgment of God. Now, as Jesus was speaking these things, there was still time for people to stop being against him and start being for him. So therefore, he said, and so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Here's some super good news, people, especially if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. It is possible, no matter how sinful that you have been, no matter how unworthy you might see yourself, it is always possible to turn and to be with Jesus rather than against him. And therefore, to find forgiveness and salvation, to be gathered rather than scattered. Every kind of sin, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But there is one exception, one kind of sin that will never be forgiven, continuing from verse 31. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what on earth does it mean to speak against the Holy Spirit? That's what blasphemy is, by the way, speaking against God, uh, slandering God. And, and why does speaking against the Spirit have a, a different outcome to slandering the Son of Man? Well... If you remember all the way back in your Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7, this is a good passage to know if you don't know it, Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is this human-like figure in, in a vision of the prophet Daniel who approaches the Ancient of Days, that is God. And instead of being struck down in sin, he's actually welcomed into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And all power and glory and authority, the, the stuff that God alone has, is bestowed upon him. Now, 
at this point in his ministry, Jesus, you could say, has not yet approached the Ancient of Days. This is before his death, resurrection and ascension. It's only when we get to the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection that he will say, and you can read this in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And even then, he doesn't begin the final, he doesn't sort of consummate the final judgment. He, he commands that disciples get made from all nations and, until the end of the age. And so at the point of Matthew 12, where we are here, you could be forgiven for rejecting Jesus as the Son of Man. You'd have time to eventually realise that he is indeed the Son of Man and also the Christ, and obviously then you need to repent and receive his forgiveness uh, so as to be for him rather than against him. But Jesus was certainly, most certainly, performing his miracles here in Matthew 12 by the power of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was therefore making clear that Jesus is the suffering servant the great servant of the Lord from Isaiah, who also accomplishes the divine work of God. The Pharisees have referred to that servant's work as the work of Satan. They've rejected the clear testimony of God, the Holy Spirit. That was dangerous because it was the suffering servant of the Lord in particular who especially brought forgiveness to Israel. If they rejected him... They rejected the forgiveness he brought. If they did not receive him, they'd miss forgiveness in this age and, of course, in eternity, the age to come. Now, friends, that's not to say that blasphemy against the Spirit isn't also possible today. It most certainly is possible today. It's just that on this side of Jesus' resurrection, it's a broader phenomenon, if I can put it that way. God, the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. Uh, he keeps pointing people to Jesus. You've got a church that's going on about the Spirit all the time, they're not very spiritual. You've got a church that's going on about Jesus all the time, that's because the Spirit's at work, right? The Spirit is the great evangelist. He bears witness to the fact that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who brought forgiveness by his sacrifice at the cross and who rose as the son of David whose body did not see decay, and who ascended as the great son of man in order to rule over people. That's what the Spirit does. And if you know that there is no other name by which our sins can be forgiven, if you know that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God, and yet you willfully, resolutely reject his rule, well then of course you will remain unforgiven in eternity. I guess a really simple, helpful and memorable way of putting this is there can be unsettled rejection of Jesus and there can be settled rejection of him. Unsettled, he's not yet your Lord and Saviour, but you anticipate the possibility that if you're convinced, he will be. But settled, you actually know the claims of Jesus, you know who he is, and you still defiantly, probably because you've got too much to lose, say, no, settled rejection. Now, at this point, with the Pharisees, the jury is still out, even though they're about as close to settled rejection as you can be, which is probably why Jesus is warning them. And so now Jesus frames his teaching even more as a dire warning. From verse 33, 
Make a tree good, its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. Logic is simple. The quality of the tree, sooner or later you know it by what it produces. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, using the same language as John the Baptist. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, like the tree is known by the fruit. What you've said about Jesus shows what's in your heart. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. Now, we do rightly get the sense that Jesus is talking about an ongoing phenomenon. What you say really reflects what you believe or the condition of your heart. Uh, some of you will know me. You were talking to someone else, and you talked about me, and you said, Ben is the kind of guy who says... What, what might you come with? Benny's the kind of guy who says guitars are awesome, right? If you hear Ben saying guitars suck, you know he's probably having a bad day and that's not actually what he says. He might have said those words, but that's not what he says. That's not what he believes. That's not his heart, so to speak. Well, what have we got so far with the Pharisees? Yeah, Jesus, in a derogatory sense, is a friend of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes. He's a glutton and a drunkard. We're going to plan how to kill him. We've seen all that already so far. He's in the power of Satan. Man, these guys keep saying a lot of really bad things in an ongoing way. But it looks like they're almost settled in their rejection of him. And that's, that's, a, that's a really terrible place to be. And so verse 36 but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. And of course in this context, clearly the empty words, he's talking about people speaking, are words about him. What you say about Jesus is really the basis upon which you, you'll fare or not fare on the day of judgment. As a matter of fact, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, because really the two go together, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans chapter 10. The key teaching, I think, from our section is that knowingly rejecting the truth about Jesus is an especially damnable sin. Why? Well, of course, because it amounts to the rejection of the possibility of God's forgiveness. You reject him, you're rejecting forgiveness. And given the way Jesus speaks and the rest of the New Testament functions, it is actually a warning that people do need to hear. You see, I desperately want all those who are weary and burdened to come to acknowledge the gentle and lowly in heart Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And I want them to hear that. Equally, I want them to hear that if you knowingly reject the Son of Man and the, 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 the Christ who is God himself in the flesh, you will suffer eternal condemnation. Both of those things are on the lips of Jesus, are on the lips of the apostles, are really in the pages of the New Testament. And both of those things need to be proclaimed. Now, by way of implication, the first and most obvious one is I don't know the heart of everyone in this room. It may be the case that you need to hear the warning right about now. If you're not yet a Christian and you're here, or hello if you're watching, and you know that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God, you know that he alone can give the forgiveness of sins that all people need to be in a right relationship with God. For goodness sake, 
Don't let your hard heart get more settled with every minute that you remain in rebellion against him. Stop it. I know you might have lots to lose, but stop it. Turn. Repent. Say, yeah, God, I actually am a sinner. I have, to this point, not acknowledged Jesus Christ as my Lord. And I recognise that that does result in eternal judgment, and I don't want that. Father, forgive me. I want to trust in Jesus. I turn now to live for him. That's something you can do in your own mind any time, and I really urge you, if you've not done that already, to to do it. It might just be that the great Son of Man decides to consummate the final judgment tomorrow. He might come back, and by then it'll be all too late. But for those of us who do know the Lord, an area that I think in our neck of the woods that we're a little bit often deficient in is the spiritual discipline of discernment. And it's related to what Jesus says here. The Pharisees get him terribly wrong. They're claiming that he's doing the work of the devil. But because we have embraced the witness of the Spirit, if we're in Christ, we therefore want to go as far in the opposite direction as we can. We want to get him terribly right. It actually matters that we get Jesus right because he is the embodiment, the personification of truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. It's only ever always so easy to feel like you're battling against the current when you argue for biblical truth that our culture sees as conservative, sees as being narrow. Because the church keeps embracing the the stupidity of the culture around it. You argue for something biblical. You stand up for something that you're convinced the scriptures teach when it's unpopular. It's always going to be something that's considered more conservative by everyone. And, And it's kind of looked at, don't be so narrow, don't be so judgy, right? But we care about the truth because we care about Jesus, who is the truth. Don't be ashamed of discernment. Don't be ashamed of thinking about what the truth of the Word of God is, even when it grates against sensibilities of our culture or even uh, other Christians. Don't be ashamed of discernment. Now, just before I um, close up, I I, I want to um, give a wonderful assurance, it's a wonderful way to finish, that for those who are in Christ, I hope you've got this already, but I'm going to spell it out just in case you don't. For those who are in Christ, it is now impossible for you to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's witness has already impacted you and made you someone who acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord. Without the Spirit, you can't have called him Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, right? So you don't have to sit there worrying, oh, what if I've done something that sort of amounts to blasphemy against the Spirit? If you're in Christ, the answer is no, you haven't. And if you're God's elect, well, you actually can't. The Spirit of God has come upon you already. Don't stay up at night thinking, oh, gee, I hope I don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. If you're not yet a Christian, then be worried, and for goodness sake, let that worry turn into repentance. I'm going to conclude in prayer, and then I think we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Yes, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to your people for our good, and that includes the dire warnings, the true warnings of eternal punishment for those who continue in hard-hearted rebellion against our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, may we have great courage 
when uh, it's right in terms of time and context, to not hold back, but to give the warnings that Jesus himself and the apostles give as we commend the wonderful news that Jesus is our gentle and lowly Lord that people can come to and find forgiveness. Father, I pray for anyone who as yet has not turned and repented, uh, that it will please you to move them powerfully by your spirit to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Saviour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, look at this. Um, it's my great joy and honour to uh, lead us in uh, the celebration of uh, the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I'm quite a... F- I, I'm very Anglican at this point. I'm quite, quite a fair of... Uh, quite a fair... Quite a fan of the prayer book. <laughs> the fair. Quite a fan of the prayer book. Uh, and so that's uh, what we're going to use. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our loving Heavenly Father has given us a physical symbol of the means by which we've been forgiven for our sin through the body and blood of our Saviour Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and I quote from 1 Peter 1, uh, 2.24, Our Lord Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Knowing the goodness of God and of our failure to respond to him with love and obedience, let us therefore confess our sins together. For those who are so inclined, please say together with me, Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have turned against you, ignoring you and rejecting your will for our lives. We have been stubborn and rebellious, but you are merciful and kind. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our God is slow to anger and full of compassion. He forgives those who humbly repent and trust in his Son as Saviour and Lord There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. He is worthy of all praise. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We praise you for your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ, who by his death on the cross and rising to new life offered the one true sacrifice for sin and obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. Together, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And now, Father, we thank you for these gifts of uh, bread and uh, and wine slash grape juice and pray that we who receive them according to our Saviour's word may be reminded of his body and blood. On the night before he died, uh, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we who are many are one body in Christ, for we all share in the one bread. 
After supper, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord to proclaim our fellowship in his death. And we do this until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus. I can see uh, that we're about to distribute the bread and the wine. Now I'm going to guess that they're going to hand it out with tongs. I'm going to guess that there's uh, grape juice. And I'm going to guess that there's gluten-free as well. Good. Thank you, guys. Uh, Now, this is not just something for regular members of this congregation. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, maybe if you've just only come to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you're welcome to celebrate with us. Please hold on to it when you get your stuff. And uh, after a minute, we'll all eat and drink together. Oh, just normal. Thanks, man. Pledging. Should mention, folks, if any of you ever have, you know, questions about the Lord's Supper, communion, the sacrament, why we do things as we do. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I didn't delight in such uh, topics. So come and ask me about it. You guys, good to go. Well, brothers and sisters, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. Again, brothers and sisters, drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Amen.
Let us pray together. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped so that we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen.